anyways, my name is Eric. I'm not normally up here, so if I don't know you, I haven't had the pleasure to meet you yet. Um, I've been here for about four and a half years. I usually am uh, serving with the youth group in the room next door, but instead I'm up here today, which is pretty exciting. Uh, now, in relationship to the um, allergies comment, um, <clears throat> this is not related to the sermon, so you have to take notes yet, um, but I took a Zyrtec this morning, and so my mind's kind of like all over the place. Uh, so I was thinking as I was getting dressed, this is the first time I've worn shorts preaching, and I wasn't sure if that was okay, uh, but I got to thinking about fashion a little bit, and what I, what I, what I realized in my Zyrtec stupor is that Shrek and Han Solo have the same outfit. Have you guys noticed that before? It's crazy, right? It's, like I said, not related to the sermon at all, but very interesting, and I have the microphones, so you have to listen. Anyway, I'm really excited that you're here. I'm really excited to read God's Word with you. If you've got a copy of it, either turn it on or open it up. If you don't have a copy of a Bible, it's all the way at the end of the row, so I'll be happy to, to get it to you. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. If you want to scroll on down to Ephesians chapter 4 with me, that'd be great. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 17. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. <coughs> Word of God says this, it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in, the true, righteous, in true righteousness and holiness. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I am so glad that you saved me. And it's certainly not because of anything I did. I have shown over and over I am incapable of earning my salvation. Uh, but yet, your love for all of your people is immeasurably vast. And I thank you for the opportunity to share that with these people. I pray that uh, there would be very little Eric in this sermon and a whole lot of Jesus. I pray that we would see your word. I pray that we would uh, grow from it. And I pray we would look more like you, even just a little bit, after this is over. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am a bit of a researcher, and I don't mean a researcher in the sense that I do anything worthwhile with my time, but more that I spend a lot of time on Amazon before I spend money. Um, and that, that, not just Amazon, but like anytime I spend any large amount of, like anything over like $25, I just spend a lot of time uh, figuring out how I'm going to spend my money before I spend it. So it's like house, car, um, computer, things like that. I spend a lot of time checking out just to make sure my money's going to the right place. So recently, I got a new phone, and it's a Samsung. Uh, what that mean? right. So what that, <laughs> what that means, I spent a lot of time looking at reviews just to make sure this is like, you know, it's going to meet my needs the right way. And I found out what the most compelling uh, reviews are not the ones who are like, I've been using Samsungs for years and this one's also good. But it's more like the ones that go into like the spirit of like, I don't know if it's any good. Let's try to be objective about it and be like, in the, the compelling words are always, it surprised me, right? You're like, they went into like the spirit of um, underestimating or 
not looking at the right way, and they get surprised and like, oh, nice, this is actually pretty good. And those were always the most compelling to me as I look for reviews of my products. So in the spirit of that, I have this idea of like before and after is kind of the most compelling of things, right? So like uh, underdogs are always interesting to us because before they were nothing and now they're everything. Or like, uh, you know, people who conquer um, some sickness or who lose a whole lot of weight. The before and after is always just like really gets us excited. So I have some before and after pictures to share with you guys, and I hope you enjoy them. This is, um, it was unrelated to my thoughts this morning, I think. Not sure, Zyrtec. Anyways, uh, this is very important. I thought that was interesting, and that would certainly sell me on that stuff. Big. Anyways, here's the next one. I'm not a nerd, you're a nerd. Anyways, um, I thought this was pretty impressive, and I, I, they earn my business. What do we got? So this one, I, maybe you guys can relate to this one a little bit. Um, I've definitely been there. Uh, this one is really real for me right now. Uh, and then this one is a little mean, but uh, it's funny to me. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, Hopefully that's easy, it makes sense to identify with, right? We have this sense of before and after, and some kind of huge transformation takes place in us and through us to get us from point A to point B. And I think there's a a lesson to pull from that for our spiritual lives. No season of our spiritual lives are marked by absolute stagnation. And while definitely we can endure months, weeks, years, seasons of dryness and difficulty in our spiritual lives, we are constantly on a path either away or towards the Lord. Another way to say it is we don't drift into holiness. So in this passage of scripture that we just read, Paul is speaking to the church and is explaining the life of the person as they transform from unbelief into belief. And he starts out by describing the natural state of who we are before we meet Jesus. And then from there, he moves into describing what changes us and ends by explaining how we should walk as we have this new lives as believers. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in all of that. But what he says very clearly and where we start is by this idea that salvation is not ours. It is not what we did. It is never what we did. It is always and forever the work of God in us. A couple of chapters ago in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts out, Paul's the author if you're not sure. Paul writes um, the following phrase. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I want you to pretend that you don't know what zombies are for a second, but what do dead people do? Nothing. Hey, one person got it. (laughs) So Troy Troy has instructed us, the dead people don't do anything. He's right, right? Dead people don't do anything. Dead people aren't like, I'm going to really get my life together today. It's just ironic, but... um, but they don't, right? They don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They're not like, I've got my stuff together. Today's going to be an awesome day. Like zombie, not zombies, dead people don't do anything. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. That's where all people find themselves before they meet Christ. We are unable to love and please God on our own. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says that from whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, Paul again says, The mind that is set on the flesh, the things of the world, the normal everyday things that you see, the mind that is set on the flesh is unable to please God. Not unwilling, not disinterested, unable to please God. So if we can't please God by what we're able to do, what chance do we have? And for that, I have another pop culture illustration. Who knows or remembers the Microsoft Zune. 
Yeah, dog, those things were the best. Um, I loved my Microsoft Zune, and I don't care if you laugh at me for it. If you watch uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, the Zune has kind of made like a little bit of a resurgence through those. <clears throat> Anyways, I got a Zune um, for free. I was in, I think, 10th grade, and I had no money but really wanted one. So what does a person with no money who wants something does besides stealing is... <laughs> I didn't steal it. I... I entered a contest, right? Those contests that you're never sure if someone actually ever wins. Uh, well, s someone won, and one time it was me, and I got it, and it was awesome. Guys, you don't under you're not happy enough about this. I got a free Microsoft Zune. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I was, it was like some like anonymous online thing. This is before you had to like put your actual name in. They just like picked your, your username out of a hat or something, and it was me, and I got it for free, and it wasn't because I did anything or because I earned it. It's just like... I'd like a Zune, please. And I got it. They chose me for no other reason than they chose me. That's what God is like. Now, you guys are much more valuable than a Microsoft Zune. Respect. Um, God has picked his people. And it's not because of all the good things you're able to muster yourself to do. It's not a deterrent because of all the bad things you've done. You've done. God picked you because that's what God does. He doesn't pick you because you're the best or you're the smartest or the best looking. He doesn't ignore you because you're poor or depressed or you're sick or you're broken hearted. God is the savior of all people, says 1 Timothy 4.10. And so this master of all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one whose throne is heaven, who uses the earth as his ottoman, has looked down at you at your best and your worst and said, I want you and I'll do whatever it takes to get you. That's the God that we meet. So the first section of this passage starts in verse 17. Let's look back at the text. <clears throat> verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Say and testify in the Lord is how he starts with that. And I think that's a very interesting way to begin a sentence. And here's why. Uh, the word honest or honesty has a very weighty word in our culture, right? We say, I'm honest or I'm telling the truth. Um, nowhere is that more apparent for me right now than at the dinner table. Uh, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old and an almost five-year-old who really like things that are candy. Um, <laughs> and so we have a rule in our house that's usually pretty effective. That is, you get one treat per day, and you have to eat everything on your plate before you can get the treat. <clears throat> Usually works pretty well, but sometimes what happens is they get their treat after lunch, which is fine, but then I'm sometimes, you know, my wife is busy at, at dinner, so it's just me at the table, and so I'm sitting there, and they're like, can I have a treat? And, like, I don't know what to do, because I'm not sure if they've had one, so I kind of just stare at them. And it's not because, like, I'm mad or anything. I, I just, like, kind of have this idea that maybe their vision is based on movement. And if I just stay really still, then they'll just not, they'll just leave. <laughs> and they don't. Um, so what, what, what obviously happens is, like, how would you solve that? I text my wife, and she just makes the decision. It's fine. Um, <clears throat> but, like, so one of the things my, my almost five-year-old likes to say, she's like, Daddy, I'm being honest. I'm, I'm having honesty right now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, 
But this is more than just saying I'm being honest, right? Paul's not just saying I'm telling you the truth. Paul isn't just saying, like, I really feel strongly about it. He's like, this is from God. This is a big deal. Pay attention. Listen up. I am insisting is one of the ways that testify can be also rendered. I'm insisting. This is serious business. It's not a suggestion or an encouragement or a nudge. It is an exhortation. You must do this. Paul then says to his believing church that you must not walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, Gentiles in this passage refers to people who are not believers, people who have not chosen to uh, obey and follow Jesus Christ. Um, And it's not talking about literal walking. Like You're not saying like walk like an Egyptian. It's like actually living and behaving is what he's getting at here. You must not behave in a sense uh, as the non-believers do, which is interesting because on its own, that command is not super helpful, right? If someone came up to you and was like, don't live like unbelievers live and left, be like, okay. But like, because like at a macro bird's eye level of view, like our lives do look a lot like unbeliever lives, right? Like I wake up in a house, in a bed, I'm usually late for work and like I try to get out of the house on time. I drive a car that runs on gasoline to a job where I do my job for a while and then I earn that money, and then I go home, and then I eat food and watch TV and hang out with my family. That is not very different from an unbeliever's life, I think. Um, so what do we do with that, right? What is, what is to be different? We have to keep reading is the thing. <clears throat> so he goes on, you, you, we should not behave like Gentiles. How? In the futility of their Minds. He goes on in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Excuse me. What is most crucial is that every single person who has ever walked the face of the earth, except for Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect Son of God, was at one point futile in their minds, with darkened understanding, alienated from God because of ignorance, and with a hardened heart. This was, and for many is, the spiritual state of our lives before we meet Jesus Christ. One commentator points out <clears throat> there are four, um, four ways that the unbelieving person rejects God. So there's futility of mind, we just read. Futility of mind, darkened understanding, ignorance, and hardness of heart. Three out of those four ways has to do with our minds, how we think. Faith in God is marked initially by repentance, which is a mind thing. It's a decision to turn away from that which is wicked and sinful and instead turn to that which is good, holy, and right. It is a changing of our minds. And that's what Paul is getting at. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is just the gospel in excruciating detail. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no hope. You had no chance. But... By the graciousness of God in this state of running away from God, this sin, this death, God saw all of us and desired that each and every single one of us should stop running away from God and instead run to him. So that in desiring this, God knew he could not simply dismiss the sin and rebellion that we had committed against him. And so he sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that you and I could not live. He died a sinner's death on the cross to pay for our sins. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, Jesus did, in victory over death, guaranteeing that whoever believes in the message of Jesus can be saved and sinners like you and me can be part of God's family. 
And with this glorious truth in mind, Paul describes the state of all people before God. We cannot underestimate our sin. That's what Paul's getting at here. It is dangerous. We live in a world that continues to push sin as normal, that says that's good about God, about that which God says that's wrong. And we have to continue to fight to see sin for what it is. We can, if we never recognize our own sickness, we will never rejoice in the cure. If we never see that we were once lost and hopeless and destined for eternal separation from God, we will never hope to understand the wondrous mystery of the love of God that died and rose again for each of us. And when we see the sinful state of ourselves before Christ and the sinful state of other people before Christ, it should lead us to prayer and compassion. Compassion because they are unable to please God in their minds. They behave this way because they know no other way. Without the direct intervention of someone or something that will instruct and guide them to the way of thinking and acting and doing the way of God, they have no choice but to go on and living the way that goes against God because that is what they love. And it must further move us into prayer because as we see the fallenness and brokenness of this world, we know that it doesn't, it's, we can't yell someone into the kingdom of God, right? We can't yell at them on Facebook or Twitter enough to say, hey, believe. It doesn't work like that. We pray because God is the one who does the saving. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, for one thing, the sinful man's thinking is vain or futile. It leads to no substantial purpose. He does, since he does not know God, he cannot truly understand the world around him, nor can he understand himself. The sad story is told in Romans 1, 21 through 25. Our world today possesses a great deal of knowledge, but very little wisdom. Thoreau put it beautifully when he said, we have improved means to unimproved ends. The saved man's thinking is futile because it is darkened. He thinks he is enlightened because he rejects the Bible and believes the latest philosophies, when in reality he is in the dark. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, says Romans 1.22. But they think they are wise. Satan has blinded the minds of the unsaved because he does not want them to see the truth in Jesus Christ. It is not simply that their eyes are blinded so they cannot see, but their minds are darkened so they cannot think straight about spiritual matters. Of course, the unsaved man is dead because of the spiritual ignorance the truth and the life go together. If you believe God's truth, then you receive God's life. But you would think that the unbeliever would do his utmost to get out of his terrible, his terrible spiritual plight. Alas, the hardness of his heart enslaves him. He is callous or past feeling because he has so given himself over to sin that sin controls him. This is the world that we live in. The theologian named Karl Barth says that this passage describes the pre-Christian as someone who engages in silly methods to pursue meaningless goals. And for your enjoyment, with permission from my wife, I have a video of us uh, engaging in silly methods to pursue meaningless goals. Let me give you a little bit of backstory real quick. Uh, have you ever felt that maybe you and your spouse, your significant other, or maybe your family are just like a little bit weirder than everyone else? Yeah, I'm about to help you all feel a lot better about yourselves, <laughs> right? So like back in the fall, my wife bought a silicone muffin tray with like 
uh, jack-o'-lanterns on it, which is it's great. And um, we were cleaning it, and I was like, this guy is kind of heavy, and like dropped it on the counter, and it just kind of flopped there. It's like, oh, man. And I looked at Sarah, and I was like, can I see if I can make you catch this with your face? And she said yes, and it didn't work. But then she was like, we got to do it. And so for about 20 minutes of our lives, we did this. Now, I'll admit that one was a bad throw. Um, I really, I, like, I want everyone to note and respect the power stance. Like, she's got, like, it's not only, it, like, the power comes from the thighs, but, like, also the hands are, look at that. It's just masterful. Absolutely, like, anyways. So, yeah, got one more. This is a pretty good throw, so I'm, I'm going to abdicate myself a responsibility on this throw, because look at this. <laughs> Love you, babe. <laughs> yeah, we're weird people. But can you imagine if that was like our life goal? <laughs> like if we spent our whole lives <laughs> trying to do that, that would be a really wasted existence, wouldn't it? But that is like a meaningless, that is, yeah, it's just silly. It's a silly method to a meaningless end. And that's what God, and that's what Paul is saying. What God is saying about the people who don't believe in God is like, as much as you can do, as important as your life is, as much as you matter, a life that is not lived in service and passionate pursuit of the Lord is a life ultimately unfulfilled. And so that's where we find ourselves before we meet Jesus. So the question must become, if you have not met Jesus, how the heck do I get from point A to point B? How do I get from this state of unbelief to this state of belief? How do I get from death to life? Glad you asked. Let's keep reading, shall we? <coughs> Pardon me. Verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, That is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, to me, there's a little bit of a conflict at first because you say you've learned Christ, but Eric, you just spent uh, 22 minutes and 37 seconds saying how God does the saving work. So how, what is it? Does God do the saving work or do we learn Christ? And of course, the answer is yes, absolutely. The answer is yes. Very good. Right? So anyone can know facts about the gospel. In fact, one of the most celebrated Bible critics of uh, the entire world teaches not far down the road at UNC Chapel Hill. That dude knows way more about the Bible than I do. But what's the difference between him and me? God is the difference. God is the difference between me and him. Somehow, in God, for God, in his mercy and grace, he looked at this sinner like me, and he chose me, and he said, that's my child. God saw this miserable, proud, self-righteous, egotistical, perverse, profane, sinful, and depressed Eric, and in 2010, God said, follow me, and life has never been the same. And certainly nothing I've done. I haven't Man, I haven't even earned, like, a title promotion at work. I definitely haven't earned salvation. 
And yet this scholar, this world-famous dude, this author for all of his books, his accolades, his degrees, his talk shows, everything, he doesn't have the hope that I do. And it's not because I earned it, it's because God did something. Because in John chapter 10, 26, Jesus says, those who believe are my sheep. And certainly God has chosen us to believe way before we ever choose him. And so we're not responsible for our salvation, but we are not freed from responsibility either. We are lovingly allowed and instructed to follow and grow. The phrase, you learned Christ, in verse 20, is a stunningly unique phrase. Two commentators, Peter O'Brien and Tony Morita, note this. The phrase, to learn a person, appears nowhere else in the Bible, and to date, has not been traced anywhere else in pre-biblical Greek documents. Paul is using relational language. When you become a Christian, you do not merely learn about the teaching of Jesus. You develop a relationship with him. We are not saved for the sake of being saved. We are saved into a friendship, a fellowship, and a relationship. As a child that's adopted, is not adopted into a blank void, but is adopted into a loving family, family, so too we are adopted into the open arms of an eternal and omnipotent and omniscient God who welcomes us and cries out, at last you are mine. And as we grow in Christ, we learn who he is as we would in any other relationship. We learn him how? By engaging with his word. We have to read our Bibles, guys. And it's not because reading your Bible is the Christian thing to do. It's not because there's a checklist that you got to, you know, hit another box on. It's God's word. It's what he has chosen to reveal about himself and what he wants us to know about him. It is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be perfect and complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Equip yourselves for doing God's will by reading God's word. That's how we get there. And furthermore, we need to be taught the word. It's not enough just to sit there ourselves, but we have to learn it. You're here on a Sunday morning. That's a great start. 51 other Sundays a year when I'm not preaching, it's an even better start. But you're here. Sitting underneath the proclaiming of God's word, even when it does not feel like it's an earth-shattering thing in that moment, is a practical way for you to move from one degree of holiness into the next. It's not going to feel like much every single time. In fact, a lot of times it won't feel like anything at all but you're moving from one degree of holiness into another. And that's how we get from point A to point B. We spend time with other believers who can teach us about God's word and we can share our lives with. We call that community. And we spend time with other people. We pursue God in passionate prayer. We bring him problems and struggles and praises. We tell him um, everything that we need help with. We listen for him as we go about our lives. And we seek to do his will. These are all very different things. And this is what's the difference between the Gentile and the believer. F.F. Bruce says this, the call of Christ is and will always be radically different compared to the given lifestyle of the pagan and unbelieving world. God continually sets up an economy wherein he gets the glory 
for doing the saving work, and yet in his love has given us the opportunity to know him as close as anyone can know anyone else. And there's one more important phrase that I want us to look at here. In verse 21, where Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And if you spent much time around philosophy students or non-believers or apologists or someone, you may have heard what's called the, um, the elephant metaphor when it comes to religion and spirituality. If you're not familiar, the way that this one works is um, the story goes like this. There are a handful of blind wise men who are kind of just wandering along and they bump into an elephant and they've never heard of an elephant before. They've never seen an elephant because they're blind. And so they start feeling it. And so they, one feels its leg and it's like, oh, this is a interesting shape and it's very strong and sturdy. Whereas the guy like feeling the tail is like, oh, it doesn't smell great, but it's kind of long and stringy. Uh, and another one's feeling the trunk is like, oh, it's kind of like a giant worm. And so like, and then another one's like uh, feeling the ear is like, it's kind of papery and rough. And <clears throat> so the, the objection is that all religions are feeling the elephant and all have some view of the truth and it's not wrong, but it's not the entire truth because we're all just kind of trying to figure things out, which is it's not a bad metaphor when you kind of think about it, and it's not the worst, but uh, the difference between the elephant and Christianity is it kind of falls apart because Christianity says the elephant talks, and it says, I'm an elephant, and this is what I am, and this is what I'm like, and this is how you can know me as an elephant better. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. We're not trying to figure out God. God has revealed himself to us. That is truth. God has given us the truth. This is the wonderful news of God, that while we were separated and alienated from God, God came to us to rescue us, and in doing so, gave us his word, wherein we find all things needed for life and salvation. We know this, one of the most incredible passages of Scripture that um, any other time would probably have been a blasphemy and penalty by death kind of a thing. Uh, John chapter 14, John, uh, Jesus and his disciples are having their last meal together, and he's talking about how he's going to die, and that he's going to get raised from the dead, but then he has to go, and he's going to prepare a way for them so that they can go to heaven. And then he's like, you have to follow me because I'm going to make the way for you. And Thomas says, oh, Jesus, what's the way? And Jesus looks at him, he was like, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth, the truth and the life. In this moment, Jesus asserts himself more than just a leader of a Jewish sect and instead claims for himself all authority and power and truth and all creation and it belongs to him. And it would be complete heresy if it wasn't true. And it is. That's our God. He is not a truth. He is the truth. All truth is in Christ. And Jesus says elsewhere in the book of John that we know and learn and grow with Christ. As we do those things, we will know the truth and that truth will set us free. That's good news. That is good news. He is the savior of all people and in him is absolute and undivided truth. And so the section of text that we're dealing with today ends with direction. We kind of get to the before, we got the, the path along the middle, and now we get the after. What do we do going forward? Paul spent the entirety of Ephesians kind of building up to this transition. J.D. Greer, who's a pastor at the Summit Church down the road, he says this of the things that are coming up. He says, that's why these prescriptions come in chapter 4 and not chapter 1. 
Only after saturating yourself in the gospel, Paul has driven you into the gospel found in chapters 1 through 3. Only after that, the Spirit of God, only after the Spirit of God has renewed your heart according to his prayers, will your heart see and know God and change. So let's dig into this a little bit. Look at me. Look at verse 22 with me. Don't look at me. Look at the Bible. Some of you were looking at me still. <laughs> the Bible. Verse 22. Paul says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How does one put off the old self? Well, I want to talk about something kind of nerdy for a little bit, and it's grammar. So if you like that, listen up. And if you don't, listen up. So according to theologian F.F. Bruce, the put off here comes from the Greek word apatithemi, which gives a sense of casting away or forcefully putting away. Some other places that we see this term used in the Bible, it's not a super common phrase, but some other places that we see it is when Herod throws John the Baptist into jail and is not pretty ha- not happy with him at all, if you remember the context. So he's pretty forcefully throwing John the Baptist into jail. The, another time that it's used is when Stephen is thrown out of the city in Acts 7 right before he is stoned to death. So it's pretty forceful to put off the old self. It's also a unique combination of both the imperative and the indicative moods. If you went cross-eyed, let me, descri- let me explain. It combines the presentation of facts with the necessity and force of clear command and instruction. And so when you smush those together, you get a pretty clear sense of Paul telling you, be who you are. You have to put off the old self because you are in Christ. So continue to put off the old self because that is the call of a believer. Now here's the thing. While the new self is clearly 100% preferable to the old, Paul is indicating that this old self never just ups and dies. Um, I don't know about you, but that's kind of frustrating for me sometimes. But the next step we take in that, in verse 23, is we don't just try really hard, but we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. Remember earlier, we said that this following of Christ is a changing of our minds. Our bodies don't change. Our circumstances don't change. But the way we think about life and everything, we, we change the way we think about life and then everything as a result changes. Because of this, Paul is focused on the renewal of our minds. The definition of how we think, how we interpret the world, the way that we look at every situation must be colored by this newfound relationship that we have in Jesus. Let me give you an example. Uh, When I was a little kid, I was really into the Garfield comic strips, right? And so because I liked Garfield so much, I was like, my family needs a cat, right? But then I matured, and I realized the only, like the, the only good cat is one that's medium rare with like a baked potato and some asparagus. And I don't actually eat cats, but, you know, things are what they are. But, you know, having grown and matured in Christ, we followers of the Lord have been called to have a refreshing of our minds. We are not who we once were. We have matured. We have grown 
Uh, Paul loses this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, what renews our minds? God's word. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he prays that we'd read our Bibles. He says, sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. Guys, Jesus prayed for you, and he prayed that you would read your, God's, your copy of God's word, that you would read your Bible, and that you would let it transform you. And I want to take a quick moment to address those in the room who read their Bibles even when they don't feel like it, and when it feels like it's making no difference, when the time in the Word just seems dry and brittle and stale, and like the words are just words on a page and nothing more, thank you. Well done. Because that is faith, and that is obedience. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a piece of satire wherein he mimics an elder demon writing to a younger demon about how to tempt humans. And this is what I think is maybe the most powerful quote of the whole book. So the older demon to writing to the young one whose name is Wormwood, he says this, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. The obedience to reading God's word, to praying and memorizing scripture, to sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's word, to the meeting of the saints, even when it seems futile, simply because you know it means obedience. God loves it. Loves it. Take a moment to think about the Grand Canyon. I've never been there. Uh, I'd really like to. I've been to some cool places, but let's think about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon did not show up overnight. It wasn't even a few like really big bursts of waves that like made a hole in the ground, right? Because if it was just like a few blasts of water, it wouldn't be the Grand Canyon. It would be like the average hole. Um, but we don't have an average hole. We have a Grand Canyon. What makes the Grand Canyon so spectacular is the faithfulness, the continual movement of the water that continued to erode at the rock over thousands of years to create this unbelievable sight that we see today. The old self is not washed away all at once. Sin is sticky stuff. It's messy stuff. It is persistent stuff, and it does not like to give up. But the faithful intake of the Bible and God's word over time wears sin away and renews our minds and changes us forever. We are made in God's likeness, is what Paul says. Not in the way he looks. I, th I assume God probably has more hair than me. But we are made in God's likeness to share his true righteousness and holiness. Holiness being defined as his distinction from the things that are not godly, right? Swiss cheese is holiness because it's set apart, because it tastes bad. Um, no, Swiss cheese is not. It's holy in a different sense. Uh, but we must be holy as God is holy, what displeases him, what offends God, what he hates, dictates to us how we must feel about those things. And it's not because he's a malevolent tyrant or anything like that. It's because God's right. 
He's God. If he feels that way about certain things, we better believe those things too. We do not get to determine how God feels. That's God's right. He gets to decide how we ought to feel about any particular thing. And no matter what God decides, he will always be right because he is God. The righteousness of God lives up to God's standards. Holiness expresses itself through righteousness. We live lives where we learn to love what God loves and care about what God cares about. We are motivated into action that manifests itself into right living, doing the things that God cares about. And this is how the glory of God spreads and his kingdom expands through us, his people, living his way. We must live how we are called to live. Not like everyone else, but live in a way so that people see God through us. I think a lot of the Christian faith is full of what seem on the surface kind of like logical paradoxes. And I don't mean that to be a bad thing. I just think it's very interesting. Uh, Some examples of that would be like wise men bowed to a baby. Uh, shepherds bowed before the lamb. The light of the world was consumed by darkness. The author of life died. In particular, one of those stood out to me as I was putting this sermon together. As we see in these passages, and we were just saying, God remakes us into his likeness to enjoy him and share him. But look at Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. This is a prophecy about Jesus. God says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Jesus' body was torn apart so that we could be made whole. Jesus' blood was spilled that we might keep ours. Jesus gave up his crown so that all would see him as king. That is the Savior who died for us. He saved us out of death out of sin, and he saved us from ourselves. He brings us into relationship with him that we would know him, learn him, and learn his ways, and he instructs us to behave like him, to show off his salvation, not that we've earned it, but in joy because we've been given it, sharing his love and his glory with all people so that other people too might know the love of a savior who can bring them out of darkness, renew their minds, and give them the power to walk in new life. If you have not trusted in Jesus, today is the day. Today is the day. Don't wait another moment. Trust in Jesus. Because to you, Christ says, come, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.